Boys and girls, welcome back to the Carnage House. We've got a big interview today with the director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at UTS and economist and academic by trade, Professor James Lawrenson. How are you? Good, thanks, Dougal. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for coming on. We're going to focus on China today and the Australia-China relationship and talk about a few different things. But I think the most pressing issue on people's minds as of today is the coronavirus. Right. And I checked this morning the stats. There's about just under 25,000 cases worldwide, just under 500 deaths and 14 active cases in Australia. Some of them might have recovered, I don't know. Three, as I understand it, are already out of hospital, yes. Okay, beautiful. And Scott Morrison has decided that all flights coming back from mainland China to Australia, all the passengers must first go to Christmas Island to get quarantined for two weeks, right? So the first question I want to ask you is, how do you think Scott Morrison's response is? And what should Australia do about it? Yeah, um, so he's been pretty much on the front foot, hasn't he? Mm. I mean, the US sort of took that strong action and very soon afterwards, Scott Morrison followed suit. Um, and I've been very clear to say that, you know, it's, it's important that we have strong public health responses. Uh, I, I think there's legitimate questions being asked in terms of those Australians being quarantined on Christmas Island. Um, we know other countries haven't done that. So, for example, the Americans, they've taken some similar measures, uh, but they flew people from Wuhan, the, the epicentre of the viral outbreak in China, to California. Mm, um, right. The Japanese flew them to Tokyo, um, and we flew ours to Christmas Island. So, you know, I think there's some fair questions to be asked about whether that's the appropriate response. And I think it'd be in Scott Morrison's own interest to get on the front foot and explain that as well. Why, why is it that Australia has taken uh, that approach? There, there may be some sensible reasons for it, but I, I don't think we've had that idea. Articulated um, mm. as clearly as it could have been. Mm. And how serious do you see the the virus as as being? Because there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of hype about it, um, but it also seems I think there's a two percent fatality rate around about. Should we be worried about the virus? Yeah, Dougal, I'm happy to listen to the medical experts, right? Yeah. So I don't think you want to be listening to me um, or, right. or anyone else, frankly. Um, so if Australia's medical authorities are saying. Uh, look, uh, stopping these flights is, is a good idea or, or preventing Chinese tourists and students to come. Well, that's fine. I mean, they're, they're the ones with the expertise. Again, I think it's important that the reasons are explained because we know other countries aren't doing that. So I think of the UK, for example, that's a country Australia would usually regard as pretty like-minded to us. Mm. They're letting Chinese tourists and students... Canada, another one, you know, mm. liberal democracy, mm. uh, OECD country. They're not doing that. So again, there could be some reasons why Australia is taking a different approach. But I think it'd be helpful if that's articulated. Otherwise, what happens is people just start asking questions, right? And rumours spread. Um, and then it becomes a bit of a mess. Yeah, for sure. Now, I read an article, this is just me spitballing here. I think I saw an article that said the the coronavirus, as you know, people aren't working, they're not really going outside, is costing the Chinese economy like two or three hundred billion. I think it might have been from your Twitter feed, actually. <laughs> okay. um, what's, what's the effect going to be on China? Can China recover um, 
Well, what's kind of the outlook, do you think, for yeah. China over the next few months? Next few months, pretty nasty. Um, and I think the big thing to remember there is that the Chinese economy now is not driven by exporting manufactured goods as it was 10 years ago. Um, domestic consumption is the big driver of the services economy in China. So not manufacturing, not primary industries, it's restaurants, tourism, that right. sort of thing. That's the big driver. The last year, about two-thirds of China's overall growth came from um, domestic consumption. Now, that is, is taking a massive hit at the moment. Um, Chinese people just aren't going out of their apartments. Yeah. So, um, in other words, they're not participating in the services economy. I guess it's an online services economy, but there's no doubt that that is a key part of the economy now. Um, and China's economy, I'm still pretty positive overall, but it has become a bit of a single engine aircraft in that 10 years ago, manufacturing was going great guns, services was growing, going great guns. Now manufacturing's leveled off. So it really has been services that has been mm. driving things. And now that's taking a hit. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's not pretty yeah. <laughs> for China. I mean, some of my friends just can't go outside of their house, their dormitories. One of my Chinese friends did like a series of Instagram stories about um, kind of what people are doing inside their own house to keep them occupied because <laughs> um, they can't leave their own house like three weeks. And there was, there was a good run of like a Chinese guy fishing in his fish bowl right. just because trying to catch his own fish. So Guaranteed to little bowl. get a catch right um, Or people making like uh, 10 pin bowling alleys with like bottles and things <laughs> like that. I mean, it seems like if people actually aren't going outside, I mean, it's going to be really hard for a lot of the Chinese people, right? Like shop owners, Absolutely. everybody. Absolutely, yeah. And look, that has knock-on effects for Australia. I'm sure we'll probably get on to that. But um, mm. a lot of Australian, you know, premium food and beverages that are, co are consumed at restaurants and hotels, well, people mm. aren't going anymore. So, mm. you know, there will be an impact on beef, wine, mm. those sorts of things that we've actually done really well um, at selling to China, in, particularly in recent years. Okay, for sure. Um, we've only got you for about half an hour, so I'm going to quickly move on to the next one, which is Chinese influence in Australia. And there's, you'll see a headline often with Chinese influence or tags Chinese influence. But to, I, I want to kind of see what you think about the nuts and bolts of it in terms of Chinese political influence in Australia and Chinese economic influence, let's say control over Australian assets. Yeah. So in the first one, political influence, um, we saw that big China spy story a few months ago big 60 Minutes um, piece on it, which even had politicians like uh, Andrew Hasty and I think James Patterson was on right, there. Right. Um, it was run by kind of every major news publication and then it came out a few months later that he was not a big enough spy for Australia to even worry about, according to Australia's intelligence services. We also have questions about, like, Gladys Liu. We have questions about... We have, we have the Sam Dastyari saga. Yeah, yeah. Uh, political donation seems to be a theme throughout... Should Australia be concerned about China trying to exert influence? Yeah, so massive question, Dougal. Yeah. And you've just highlighted why it is a big question because it cuts across so many different areas. Mm. Um, should we be concerned? Of course we should. Um, yeah. You know, we've got our the former ASIO head, um, Duncan Lewis, saying the level of foreign interference is unprecedented. Well, okay, <laughs> it's unprecedented. Right. Uh, so we should absolutely take it seriously. I, I guess there's a couple of things that I do respond to that with though mm. and one is uh china there could be attempts at influence and let's let's take our security agencies at their word for that that's fine um but attempts at influence don't necessarily translate to success so i'm not even attempts should be taken seriously but what we'd really worry about is if 
political decisions are being changed in response to those Chinese influence attempts, right? I mean, that's mm. when our democracy really takes a hit. Um, and on that point, I think the evidence is pretty clear that um, any political influence China has tried to exert, frankly, they've failed miserably. Uh, let's have some confidence in our institutions for a start. Uh, you mentioned media coverage. Well, has there been a week in Australia over the last two years where there hasn't been a China-influenced story? So, you know, our free and independent media, which is, you know, welcomed and everyone likes it, I think it's doing a good job, to the point where you do actually get stories like this um, Wang Liqiang spy story, whereas a big splash in the media at the start, and then shortly afterwards... Um, you know, yeah, people start... probably like a page 12 retraction or well, something. That's right. That's right. And so, yeah, my... Just on the Wang Liqiangs, mm. I actually worry that that can be damaging. I'm not really worried about Chinese influence. What I'm worried about is media credibility, right? Mm. So if we see a number of those stories where big headlines get splashed with huge claims... I mean, the, the story was that he was a Chinese spy. Yeah. I mean, the ABC ran a headline that this was the, I think, uh, biggest espionage scandal or something since the Petrov affair in 19... or the Petrov thing in 19... Correct. Right. So that's the headline, Dougal. Mm. And then a couple of weeks later, ooh, not yeah. quite, the evidence isn't backing that up. So what does the average person on the street think? You know, think, oh, well, you know, Australian media can't really trust them anymore. And I think that's a tragedy because ASIO said that Chinese interference is a real concern. Media is one of our best sources of protection, but if their legitimacy is eroded through seeking headlines, no one wins mm. out of that. And aside from that, probably the other thing I'd note is think about Australia's political decisions and alignment, strategic alignments over the last two years. Have we become closer to China? <laughs> Not really. I mean, mm. we were critical of their decisions in the South China Sea, as we should be. Um, we've been very critical of their handling of human rights issues, such as what's happening in Xinjiang at the moment. We've got an Australian detained in China at the moment without access to a lawyer or his family. The foreign minister has been very outspoken, annoyed the Chinese embassy in Australia in a big way. Um, and the Australian government, at least, in its strategic settings and its security relationship, is moving closer towards the United States, which mm. is exactly the opposite of what China would hope for. Mm. So again, um, let's take the the influence seriously but keep some mm. you know let's keep the discussion grounded mm. yeah well I've, I've seen some of your analysis and people often get put into the camps of the the hawks or the or the doves pro-china anti-china yeah. um it seems like the intelligence community in australia and probably in america as well has uh, a lot of what would be like hawkish sentiments or saying we should be careful about china china seeking to exert influence in the region and then the doves would be maybe someone like Keating who comes out and is really pro-China uh, as it goes. How do you see that debate in Australia and where, where, where should Australia be? Because there's obviously an economic incentive to be uh, closely tied to China and keep China happy. But it seems that there's also like, do we have to be like, how, how cautious should we be about our relationship with China? Uh, we should be cautious. We should be cautious. Absolutely. Ch China involves challenges and opportunities. For example, I think some Chinese actions do threaten Australia's interests, right? An example mm. of that would be uh, in the South China Sea, right? Ignoring an arbitral decision, uh, assembled cons uh, an arbitration panel assembled under the United Nations Law of the Sea. We say, and I think rightly, that we take international law and multilateral forums seriously because we're only a relatively small player. So we power, make mm. might is right, is never going to work for Australia. Mm. 
So when China does things like that, um, I think we should be... Uh, can, I, can I ask you one question? Sure. There? Um, I think everyone likes the idea of international law and, yeah. and following things. But at the same time, China can... I, I'm open to the China's argument in the South China Sea just because my understanding is China says, well, if <clears throat> this is our one access to like the sea and we have like a billion people dependent on food, yeah. we can't have other countries like having control over that over that um over that seaway and at the same time if china says why well, you talk so much about international law why is there so many tr troops in the middle east yeah i think it's a it's a pretty hard line to be so critical of china in that sense if we don't necessarily follow it ourselves it's a hard argument to disagree with dougal and i so i'm kind of in a similar boat i mean i like the idea of international law i understand why the australian government emphasizes it but well let me give you another specific example from the south china sea um, the US has criticised China for not following the United Nations Law of the Sea. Well, it hasn't even ratified right. the United Nations Law of the Sea. So how does that work? I mean, how mm. do you expect China to take that sort of criticism seriously when mm. the, you know, what we're told is the chief defender of the international rules-based order hasn't even signed up for mm. it? Uh, that's And as you said, um, let's not fall into logic fails as well. So what the US also says is that they're worried that China could close down freedom of navigation, for, close down access to the South China Sea. Well, can we just say that's ridiculous? I mean, that is just silly. Why? Because the overwhelming majority of trade that goes through the South China Sea is with China. So why would they stop their own trade? Are they going to stop their own exports going right. outside? Are they going to stop their much-needed oil and iron ore and food supplies? I mean, that is just ridiculous. So I think you're right to be a bit sceptical. And frankly, I think when these sorts of um, you know issues get raised, people like you, maybe people like me, need to be a bit more on the front foot and point out that there's some you know pretty mm. ridiculous things that are being said. Mm. Okay. To get to the second part of the original point uh, of... Chinese control over Australian economic assets. Yeah. You wrote a couple of articles uh, about kind of failed Chinese bids for, one was the Kidman Cattle Station, yeah. one was Ausgrid, the New South Wales Electricity Distribution Company, I think. Um, when, uh, so when Scott Morrison was the treasurer, he denied, he denied those uh, bids, right? He's the, I mean, you, you did a good analysis of it. You can explain it, but... They justified it on national security grounds, I believe. Is there national security grounds for stopping Chinese ownership of things like Ausgrid, big cattle stations, um, or things like that? Yeah, so this is... So you're right, they were both rejected... Um, you know, as being contrary to the national interest, because that's the that's the criteria that Australia uses. It's deliberately vague, so that it gives the Australian government flexibility. Um, you know, on Ausgrid, you can imagine. No, it's not too difficult to imagine that there could have been national security issues there. You're talking about an electricity grid, you know, mm. critical infrastructure. Well, I think we can get that. My main, not just mine, many people criticise that particular one not so much for the decision but the process right you literally had the new south wales government doing investment roadshows up in china um, touting these assets inviting mm. bids well yeah. they got a few bids uh the new south wales government said there's no problem it's all fine we've talked to the australian government and literally at one minute to midnight <laughs> the federal yeah. government said you can't so i mean that that's a debacle of a process but but the national security concerns well that you know, I'm open to that being a legitimate concern, but let's get it right. How we sell the, how we how we put these sales in the market next time. Uh, now the 
the Kidman deal is a very different scenario. So there you can certainly imagine things like community concerns, right? The fact, I think it was about 2% of Australia's agricultural land, if I remember rightly. I was back in 2016. I could be a bit fuzzy. Um, So, but saying it's a national security issue, that's a bit of a stretch. I mean, a lot of Kidman's properties are close to desert. They're very pretty rough ground. It's not It's not a critical infrastructure asset. So, you know, when we make these decisions, we're entitled to reject foreign investment, okay? And it's not just China that's been rejected. We've rejected investments from the US before as well. But let's make the process a, you know, a robust one. And the decision, let's clearly communicate why we made particular decisions. Mm. Let's talk about the Belt and Road. So the Belt and Road is a pretty huge project, which, from what I understand, kind of is aimed at recreating the Silk Road of the you know the, the big trade route from thousands of hundreds of years ago. You'd know a lot more about that than me. There was there's a lot of talk about whether Australia should participate in it or not. Uh, for those people who don't know, which is including me, how would you describe the One Belt One Road? And should Australia seek to play a part with China in that? Yeah, that's a killer question, Dougal. Here's why. Because the Belt and Road is everything and it's absolutely nothing at the same time. So what China describes it as is a connectivity issue, right? So it's to... So infrastructure, for example, is what the newspapers in Australia will talk a lot about, building roads, railways, ports, that type of trade connectivity. Actually, China talks more broadly than that. So it talks about five pillars of connectivity. It talks about financial flows, policy coordination, people-to-people flows. So it's a much broader discussion. Um, And look, I, I think we should welcome closer connectivity. One of the reasons why Australia doesn't sell more of its goods uh, internationally is because of logistical issues, right? It's just it costs too much, or it takes too long to ship goods from Australia up uh, up into the markets, particularly in 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 North Asia. So improving connectivity that's 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 good for Australia. Should we be part of it? Um, the reason the, the argument that we shouldn't be is because it is a some people say it has a strategic bent, so it's designed to tie countries closer to China. Um, and we're a security ally of the US, so they say, well, that wouldn't be in our interest to be tied closer to China. I guess my I'm a bit sceptical of that view because we don't get to control the decisions of other countries, right? So mm. if, if it's in other countries' interest to be closer to China, they're going to get engaged. They're not going to not be engaged in the Belt and Road because Australia says, um, says they shouldn't be. Um, China's economic rise is a reality, um, and that's the fundamental driver. I mean, even if there was no such thing as a Belt and Road initiative, the truth is um, the Lowy Institute did some good research on this. And, you know, the number of countries that count China as their major trading partner now far exceeds the number that the that have the US as their major trading partner. So that, that shift in economic power is happening with or without the Belt and Road. So that's another reason. Mm. I don't think we can get too hung up on these things because it's happening anyway. Um, yeah, so I think that's probably the... Uh, and also the final point would be you can stay on the sidelines, uh, but then you're guaranteed to have no 
impact. Now, mm. some people may say, well, if you get involved, you're not going to have much impact anyway. Well, okay, but I promise you, <laughs> if we don't get involved, we're going to have zero impact. And there have been examples before, like the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, for example, which was another Chinese development initiative that Australia got involved when in, we chose to sign up to it under Prime Minister Abbott. And um, we're actually really happy with the outcomes. That is, Australian input really did help to shape that institution. Mm. What would Australian participation in the One Belt, One Road look like? Yeah, that's a good question. So we tend to discuss it in terms of infrastructure, right? And this is one of the reasons why it doesn't get a lot of traction in Australia because we say, well, you know, Australian companies probably aren't going to be contributing to building a, a railway in Kazakhstan. <laughs> well, then that's right. I would argue that's um, failing to understand the possibilities of the Belt and Road. As I said before, from China's perspective, perspective it's about connectivity more generally so i think there would be no problem having using the belt and road frankly as an excuse to discuss with china which we have these huge economic complementarities with to build new types of trade connectivity you know make it easier for example for australian beef to get into china and if they want to put that discussion under the belt and road well who cares right because we just want better access to the booming chinese market um i'm not so sure you know standing on the sidelines and um being mm. worried about its strategic ends, which are happening anyway, really serve our interests. Mm. Well, what, what do you say about the concerns about quote-unquote debt trap diplomacy? I think often the example of, I think, railroads between Kenya and, and maybe Ethiopia get, get brought up, where it's the idea that if China gives a big loan yeah. to a country to build a piece of key infrastructure yeah. and then the company can't pay the loan back, then China takes control of that yeah. key infrastructure. What do, you, what do you say to that argument? Bollocks. Yeah. That's what I say to that argument. And this is one, uh, I've got some strong views on this, as you probably mm -hmm. gathered. Um, so the Chinese government has propaganda talking points. They're not the only ones. And if the American government has one talking point that keeps coming up, it's this argument that China is engaged in debt trap diplomacy, right? It's, it rolls off the tongue. It really is a US government talking point. Academic studies have been done by people completely independent. They've looked at all these countries and this argument that China's, it's like a drug, right? We're pushing this debt on you and then you you know become addicted to it and you're, then right. you're in our power. There's, there's very little evidence that actually backs up that argument. Um, you think about it, Dougal, if you, if I'm the lender, you're a, uh, you're your own country. I give you a lot of money. We build a port in your country. Well, who's at risk? My capital is in your country. You've got entirely jurisdiction. If you want to nationalise that asset, gosh, I am in a hugely vulnerable situation. What am I going to do? Send in the army if you choose to do that? So actually, the people who have the power in that situation is, in fact, the host country. Um, it's, not, it's not like a drug. <laughs> Mm. that they become addicted to it. And in any case, um, economists have looked at the numbers involved in terms of the, the share of debt that a country owes to China. Um, and Chinese debt is not the chief uh, problem of, is not the driver of debt in many of these vulnerable countries. Mm. Well, I have heard um, from different people just in conversations that the US has done, has previously done debt trap diplomacy in South America you're going to have to fact check me on that and leave it in the comments. Um, <laughs> but finally, the final thing uh, I want to talk about is the Xinjiang camps. Yeah. And there's a lot of noise about the Xinjiang camps and it's hard to find truth with the Chinese government uh, 
which is not that transparent. I mean, I was in Shanghai a few months ago and talked to the AFR correspondent Mike Smith, right? Who was on like who went on participated in like a media tour, which mm. went to one of the camps facilitated by the Chinese government, and it looked apparently a lot like a kind of set up a fake yeah. camp. Uh, you know, they've got they got to talk to a couple of the people who are there who looked like they were just reading off lines and like pretending to be happy, stuff yeah. like that. Um, so people who don't know, it's like Xinjiang is the, basically the Muslim, it's the majority Muslim uh, province in China. And China talks about these vocational re-education camps as um, a, a de-radicalization of the population. Uh, started a few years ago, estimates are about 1 million people are there. But then other people say it's more like a prison and they're not there of their own free will. And that the one last piece of context is last year there was a dump of what's called the Xinjiang Papers, right. the which detail uh, which apparently are official government documents. Um, the Chinese ambassador to the UK denies them. I think quote unquote called them fake news. Um, Heard that before. Who else says that line? Yeah. Well, it's um, one of our friends of the channel, um, <laughs> Donald Trump. But what do you, what do you think about the the Xinjiang camp? Because if the rumours are true and yeah. what. It's, it would be very concerning. Oh, absolutely. And I guess my take on this, you know, as a, I'm an economist, so mm. I don't claim to specialise in China's minority groups, uh, but you do get to a point, I think, where the weight of evidence becomes so overwhelming um, that everyone should be listening to it. And, and on this particular issue, uh, actually in Australia, we're really lucky. We've got uh, more than one academic who specialise um, particularly in Xinjiang and oh, the really? issues around there. Maybe we'll talk to him. Uh, yeah, I would, I would encourage you to. They'd give you a better comment than I would on this. And the, the thing I note about those academics is actually on China generally, they actually have a spectrum of views. You know, you've kind of got people who are more hawkish on China and you've got people who are more dovish on China. But on Xinjiang... They are all absolutely in alignment that this is a, you know, a human rights tragedy on a pretty darn large scale. This is extrajudicial detention. So, you know, OK, you know, the Chinese government says it's to de-radicalise. All right. But, gee, you know, mm. extrajudicial detention of hundreds of thousands at a million, at a minimum, that's pretty confronting um, for a country like Australia that's a liberal democracy. And even if the Chinese government says, well, it's our internal affairs, but out, that doesn't really wash either because we've got Australian residents and citizens, not a lot, but a few of them who are actually in these camps. So the Australian government, it's not something the Australian government can just, you know, sit on the sidelines over. I mean, they've, they've been pretty outspoken. And I think that's, I think that's justified, frankly. Mm. Is there any, I don't know, could Australia do anything yeah. conceivably? Not a lot, not a lot. I think the best, and so that's an argument to do nothing. Some people say, well, if you can't do anything, what's the point? You know, why, why make a big song and dance of it and perhaps put, you know, economic links if we can't actually have much of an impact? Um, I get the argument but gee you know it's pretty extreme and um, I think it's justifiable for the Australian government to do something uh, particularly when I said before as I said before we've got direct interests there um, mm. in terms of our, our citizens and residents being tied up in them. Okay fantastic well thank you for talking to us I appreciated it. Um, where can people find you? Well, um, I'm on Twitter I'm mm. sure I'm not as popular as you Dougal but J underscore 
Lawrenson. Um, that's my Twitter handle. I and we'll put it in the description. Get on there and I tweet out a bit. Um, yeah, you know, do my best. We'll put a link to the Australia-China uh, Relations Institute as well. Um, of course, you can support Carnage House. Like on Facebook, follow Instagram, subscribe YouTube. If you really darn like us, you can support us on Patreon. Um, I think that's all for today. Let us know what you thought in the comments. And hopefully we can be with you again soon. Alrighty, cool.